Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. In today's episode, Scott and I continue our series, A Time to Politic, within which we have been examining the politics of the New Testament from Jesus of Nazareth to John of Patmos. We began our series by discussing words like kingdom and gospel before we examined politically charged interactions in the life of Jesus. Most recently, we looked at the Acts of the Apostles, and today we begin the first of several episodes on the Apostle Paul, and in particular today, Romans chapter 13, as we look at these words from Paul to these house churches in Rome. But you know, Scott, as we begin our time, um, we received uh, an email or correspondence from one of our uh, recent episodes, that particular episode on Jesus with these politically charged interactions. And I wanted to begin our time, if it's okay, by just reading a part of this correspondence, because I think it sets up well um, one of the issues that seems to emerge over and over again when we begin to speak about politics. Is that okay if I read this as we yeah, begin? Yeah, yeah, okay, let's read it. This is uh, from a correspondence email that was uh, sent to you, quote, I was shocked at the lack of good faith or even simple translation of the word for you to argue that the primary political message of Jesus is not to pay taxes is absurd on its face. Moreover, to base this on the testimony of Jesus' accusers rather than his own words suggests to me a profound antichrist message. Moreover, your assertion that God's kingdom should be modeled after Rome or the United States is repugnant to me. Jesus models something different than the world where greed and sin are not the primary motives, and you claim exactly the opposite, that his kingdom should be based on selfishness and greed, end quote. That's, um, that's, a, that's a hefty claim that was leveled against uh, one of our recent podcasts. Uh, talk to me about this, Scott. <laughs> Well, yes, yes, this is uh, my, you know, when I first read this, I said to myself, what was this guy listening to? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, thought really, was he listening uh, to the episode? Uh, because I felt like the things that, you know, you're, you're welcome. People say things, they, they hear things. But I thought to myself, all right, I didn't base the interpretation on the opponents of Jesus, but I do think that the later part of Luke should be factored in when we talk about what he means about paying taxes. Hmm. Uh, so I thought, okay, but I didn't base it on that. But I do think I do think that uh, Caesar's coin and the trial scene ought to be ought to be put together. I, a lot of people ignore it, but to suggest that that we're basing the idea of the kingdom on the American government is preposterous agree i cannot think of a time in my life where i ever believed that me neither i didn't grow up in a in a politicized home but i've been anabaptist uh, in my view of the kingdom of god since the um, late 70s mm -hmm. so i was just kind of stunned I, my response would be uh did you listen to the episode to be able to say this because the things that i think he's claiming i said i think we said the opposite i agree so so uh it's yeah i was somewhat i was obviously surprised i was obviously surprised i mean yeah because you sent it to me and i thought to myself well this is odd to me i mean you're being quite charitable which as as we should be i think in these types of situations but 
I thought to myself, it sounds like this individual listened to a different podcast episode than the one that we recorded. Not to mention the fact that we, we wrote a book together where we talk about the dangers of Babylon and Rome and government yeah. and basing yeah. the kingdom of God on those things, actually. And yeah. so yeah. that's kind of strange to me. But I, I think if we can uh, if we could push a little further here just for a moment, I think and, and I would love to hear you chat about this for a second, Scott, this this does seem in some sense a little bit emblematic of these types of political conversations in our cultural moment. It, it, it does feel a little bit like we don't really hear one another. In the things that we're saying, we we jump onto a moment or a soundbite and we run with it. I don't know. How does that land for you? Well, I think that's right. And uh, I was talking to someone last night over dinner and I said, um, I've noticed on Substack that if I if I, let's say, offer. A criticism of a moral morally about something going on with a president, let's just say during Trump's presidency or during Biden's presidency, someone will write me, usually more than one, and claim that I was, let's just say I'm critiquing Trump, they'll say I'm a socialist, hmm. or they'll say I'm anti-Republican. Or if I offer a critique of something Biden said, then I'm pro-Trump. And it's amazing to me that we have no, we're no longer capable in in the United States it seems to me in the public sector to be able to analyze political positions on their own and morally but that everything is partisan mm. so if you don't line up if if you critique let's say if you critique Biden's view of abortion you are a republican you know if you critique Trump's, uh, let's just say, blatant endorsement and not very sophisticated at that. And just by saying that right there, I've become a Democrat for some of these people. Right. And, uh, you know, I've made it pretty clear over the years that I do not vote for presidential elections because I refuse to join the culture war that has happened in my lifetime. And I just don't want to participate in that at all. I don't want even to give off a hint or a rumor that I'm siding with one of the presidential candidates. So um, that's that's the problem. And this is a major issue right now in the United States. And it's why we have this series going on on this pod, on this podcast is it's it's a time to politic. Yeah. And I think there's a way of politicking for for us that avoids partisanship. Yeah. And it's good to have a Canadian in the room. <laughs> Because you don't have to take a position on our presidential candidates. It's true. I, mean, I don't. Seems like everybody in the world decides that our our elections are their elections. Yeah, no, there, no there is a lot of that. Been, and there has been, been a lot of that over the years. We've been to New Zealand. We've been to Australia. We've been to Denmark. We've been in Greece. We've been in Israel. It seems like every time we run into people, they know what our elections going on and they have a position on it. I'm thinking, you know, we don't I don't want to interfere with you. Why are you telling me how you know what's going on in our election? Well, as as Mike Bird, my friend, uh, you know, you know who he is, uh, once said, uh, your elections matter in the whole world. Yeah, and, of course. And some other countries don't. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I hear you saying and I understand. I think that we all have 
had experiences. And I think for this individual has had an experience over these last years where uh, they've been a little bit disillusioned with what they've seen in the church in relation to politics. And I think that they heard some things that we were talking about. And I think they jumped to conclusions based on clear wounds that they've experienced in ways that they have seen the church act that is unjust. And I guess I would just want to encourage all of us to come back to, you know, what I've called over the years now, the hospitality of hearing. I think we need a lot of that right now. We're not very hospitable in the way that we hear about these things. We don't listen to one another. And I guess that that listening is really important. So thanks for um, allowing us to begin there. I guess let's come back to this question then before we jump into Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. When we use the word politic or political, what what do we mean when we use that term? Because we've been using it over the course of the series. I think it's important that we keep coming back to it. What are we talking about when we talk about politics, both in uh, in the first century and to today? What are we to understand about the nature of politics? Well, one of the things I've noticed in studying the New Testament, teaching the New Testament, good grief, I mean, just beyond four decades of doing this, um, is um, I was thinking about this one day. I thought, okay, people ask me at times, what is the New Testament view of, let's say, politics? Mm-hmm. And I think, well, it just depends who you ask. So mm-hmm. I, I just sat down and jotted out uh, some passages one day. I think I sent those to you or I sent a yeah. picture of you. I mean, if you start with Jesus, you know, he doesn't really talk a lot about politics, except the fact that I would say that's all he talks about in, at some level. And then I look at Paul and you say, well, you got to go to Philippians chapter, I mean, now Romans chapter 13, but you got to look at Philippians 2. And then there is in the pastoral epistles this idea of Eusebia. And what does that term mean? And then, you know, we, we look at the book of Acts in one passage. And then I, I first started thinking about this topic way back in the 1970s when I took a class on First Peter with Norm Erickson, um, who was teaching at Trinity at the time. And then I taught First Peter for many years. And that central section, uh, say 213, uh, but 211 to 12 especially, and then 213 to 17, you have this uh, Peter actually sort of forming a theory of mm-hmm. how we should behave, how those Christians in, um, in in his region that he's ministering should behave when it comes to dealing with Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are they going to live? And James has some pretty strident remarks. I mean, he's pretty, you know, he's pretty strong on using your tongue well. Uh, and then mm. he just lets people have it every now and then. And James uh, James has some words, but the book of Revelation, and you get to Revelation 17, 18 in Babylon, uh, you have very strong, this is uh, as deep as any of the prophetic literature. Yeah. So the w- way I look at the New Testament is that they were coming to terms, and this is what I mean by politics, coming to terms with how Christians should relate to political government when, in a sense, when they are not in charge. Mm. That's sort of the New Testament posture. Mm. They do not run the government, and now they want to know how to relate. Mm. Um, It's different for Westerners, um, especially in a, a place like the United States where there are so many places in the South, particularly, 
where so many Christians are involved that there's a feel like they could almost impose the the Christian viewpoint on everybody else by voting with with that kind of power. It's a little it's that's completely different than the New Testament. Uh, but I think the principles that are enunciated, or at least that we can derive from the New Testament, shed light on how Christians should act in a political in a politic political situation and how we should relate to government and power. Yeah, that's really helpful. Is it, is it fair to say, you know, when we think of politia, like, is it fair to say that the Christians are working out based on the Christ event, what it looks like to live together, Jew, Gentile, you know, this, this new community of people, they're figuring out how to structure and order their life generally, I suppose. And that, that is kind of their politic, but it also involves the way they relate to political powers and authorities in their day. I'm trying to think even maybe more universal. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think, yeah, you know, that's an Anabaptist viewpoint. And I, and I like that. I do believe that they were working out, you know, and the the fact that Paul uses the word ecclesia mm-hmm. for their gatherings, that's a politically charged term in some contexts. Um, so I would say that they were trying to figure out how to live together a politic, a pull, you know, um, a polity mm-hmm. um, that would bear fruit and shape how they related to the political powers. Uh, let's say if they're in Ephesus, or if they're in Philippi, or if they're in Thessaloniki, the Saloniki, uh, or if they're in Corinth, or in Rome, or in Jerusalem. I mean, it's going to be different. Now, in yeah. Jerusalem, you have a situation for the Jewish believers, that would be much more like living in Dallas, Texas for Southern Baptists, where there's a lot of the Jewishness of their Christian faith um, is so pervasive that their Jewishness um, determines sort of their politics. Hmm. And that that's very much like, I think, uh, some of the parts of the United States. And let's just say, that you were in uh, the 19th century Denmark, where you know there's a state church and it's kind of running thing. That's a similar type thing. So, mm. um, yeah, the, I, I do believe that they were learning how to relate on the basis mm. of how they related to one another, and it was giving them a new vision for the way the public uh, political sphere could operate, or at least it could have given them a new vision. Yeah. I don't think many of them actually thought, well, let's let's apply this in Rome. Let's just see if we can control Rome now. Not that's not going to happen. It was no, above their pay grade. Yeah, that's really helpful. So I, I hear you and we'll come back to this again in a moment then. Obviously, one of the things we're trying to do over the course of each episode in the series is we will we are looking at letters and documents that are written in uh, sometimes different slightly different time periods, different social circumstances, different issues, and the ways in which the New Testament authors sorted out uh, a relationship between the sort of church and the political powers, which I guess brings us then to Paul's letter to the house churches in Rome. And I was wondering maybe if you could just start us uh, just sort of broadly with what, 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 what gave rise to the letter to the churches in Rome? Um, what, what, what is the reason for Paul's writing this letter uh, to these communities. It's a unique letter. Uh, most of Paul's letters that he writes, 
Uh, he either has planted these communities or he knows someone who's planted these communities. A little bit different with this these Roman house churches. Uh, we have a different kind of letter from Paul. So what gives rise to his writing this letter, just on the broad scale? <laughs> easy easy Sandy question, Wetter, right? AJ, uh, his name is Sandy Wetterer. He writes a book on this. There's several books on this, on the purpose of Roman. But, yeah. uh, you know, if you talk to Bob Jewett, Bob Jewett, uh, Robert Jewett's major book, uh, study was because he was raising money and it's a diplomatic letter he's raising money for his trip to, to Spain right. so uh, let's get let's get away from uh, the sort of theoretical approach I think Paul is coming to Rome he anticipates coming to Rome he wants them in some ways to understand what he's all about in his mm -hmm. mission he knows there are tensions within the church uh, you know, the book Reading Romans Backwards is I've heard of how it. I've tried to put I've, I've tried to put this together um, and they're strong in the week and he's trying to deal with them. Um, and there's all kind there's tensions going on. And I really do think that probably I know John Barkley doesn't agree with this and I don't like to disagree with John Barkley because I find <laughs> him so uh, perceptive about Paul's letters and careful and judicious in his exegesis. But I, mm -hmm. I do think that the edict of Claudius in 49 to kick out the Jews and the Christians probably from Rome uh, was because of success in evangelism, or at least something was going on. He got rid of them. And then they returned. And that in part gives rise to why or they, they get kicked out. And then they come back under Nero in the early years of Nero, he was at least uh, fermenting issues about cutting back on the taxes of Claudius. And uh, we later find out from Tacitus that he actually told them to, the people, the, the government kind of said, no, we're not going to do this. Yeah. But uh, I think that there was some, maybe some reasons for, for different Jews too, and different believers, Christians, to have returned to Rome uh, under that uh, under Nero because they thought there was going to be it was pretty good prospects for them, and um, when they get back they discover that there's lots of uh, lots of tension and Paul hears about this stuff and he writes this letter knowing now it's true I'm ama sort of amazed about this there's a lot of statements by people that Paul didn't know the church in Rome because he had never been there but if you read Romans 16. Come on. He knew a lot of people there. Yeah. And uh, if Priscilla and Aquila, who are mentioned first, are, let's say, the leading couple in the house churches of Rome, then Paul knows a lot of what, about what's going on. But he yeah. wants them to have... Um, I don't think that this is a succinct summary of his systematic theology. Yeah, But I do think that this is questions and answers, at least, of things that he's been asked and how he answers. Um, you know, in my Second Testament, that I put in bold the questions yeah. that are asked in Romans, and it is really an amazing number of questions. And I put in regular font um, his answers to those questions. And it's not impossible to read much of Romans 2 through 4 as just a set of question and answers. 
that Paul could easily have been asked and certainly was asked in his mission experiences. And these are sort of his answers, but at the same time, it's sort of a logical flow as well. Hmm. The same thing happens in Romans 9 to 11. So I think that there, this is sort of a letter uh, warding off the questions and answers that he's probably going to be asked when he gets there. And I might as well answer them in print before I get there. He typically did send people in advance uh, when he could to, to prepare the ground for what he was going to do. So I think he, uh, he didn't have a Titus this place. And Titus uh, seems to be the reconciling agent for Paul. Hmm. But um, this letter, I think, anticipates and responds to what he thinks is going on there. That's great. So let me read uh, the first few verses of Romans chapter 13, and then we can try to both fit them in the broader context of the letter. And then also we can ask some questions about these verses. Um, but first, let me quote uh, Michael Gorman from his uh, great little commentary on Revelation, or not Revelation, Romans rather. Gorman says this about 13.1 to 7. He says, 13.1 to 7 is among the most difficult, potentially disturbing, and even possibly dangerous of all Pauline texts. Over the centuries, it has too often been used to support the divine right of kings, blind nationalism, and unquestioned loyalty to rulers, even tyrants. And so with that in mind, let me read Romans 13, 1 to 7. <laughs> Reading from the Second Testament, let every self, every individual, order oneself under the high-placed authorities. For if not for God, there is no authority. Those existing have been ordered by God. So that the anti-orderers of the authority have resisted God's order, and the ones who have resisted will receive judgment for themselves. For the leaders are not scary to the good work, but to the bad. Do you not want to be scared of the authority? Do the good, and you will have public praise from it. For it's God's servants, servant for you uh, for the good. If you do the bad, be scared, for it doesn't carry the long knife uselessly. For God's servant exacts right-making and anger for the one who practices the bad. So it's compulsory to order yourselves under the authority, not only because of the anger, but also because of consciousness. For, because this is true, also pay tribute. For they are God's public workers, persisting in this very matter. Pay back the debts to everyone, to whom tribute, tribute, to whom tax, tax, to whom awe, awe, to whom honor, honor. I'll stop there. That's 13, one to seven. So is this a, a universal invitation then for us to submit to every ruling authority that's ever existed? What, what are we to make of, of these verses here, Scott? Um, the, the, the slide into this being a universal statement for all situations is rooted in the statement, you know, that uh, uh, if for if not for God, there is no authority. But at the same time, the posture that all government is from God and therefore good is blatantly un-Jewish right. because Jews had to, they, they knew about public resistance and they, they celebrate Hanukkah, which is resistance against an authority, which it wasn't resistance against God. It was perceived as doing the will of God. So it cannot be taken that way. It cannot mm -hmm. be taken that way. It, it requires discernment. It requires reading Romans 
13, 1 through 7 in context. Like chapter, the end of chapter 12 is about love. And soon as Paul is done, apart from chapter divisions and paragraph divisions, which I have in my uh, translation as well, um, 13.8, which is the next verse that wasn't read. Oh, this is, about, this is the language of the taxes. Oh, nothing to no one except to love one another. For the one loving the other has filled out the covenant code. So the whole law is fulfilled in people who love one another. So I, I really do believe that Romans 13 somehow has to be connected to Paul's theory of how Christians are to love one another. So he, he sees love of Rome, love of one another in Rome, love by believers of non-believers, love by Jews of Gentiles and Gentiles of Jews. All this love is somehow expressed in following his guidance in Romans 13. Then, then on top of that, I know we could talk about these things for a long time, is the last two verses that you read in, uh, of that passage was about taxation. Mm. Now that, that's a surprise. This is. is not something that has come up in the book of Romans. So why did he bring up taxes? All right. So that's sort of, the, to me, that's sort of the big picture. I don't know where uh, I've been talking enough here. I don't know where else you want to go here, but we could, we can dig in a little bit into specific points. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I, I think immediately, of course, and you've already gone here, um, but one of the questions that emerges for people, of course, is what does it look like to be, you know, ordered under these authorities? And uh, is, is being ordered under an authority the same thing as giving obedience to God? And I think, I think what a lot of people want to know about these sorts of political texts often is how how does this affect the way we live now? I think that's what a lot of Christians want to know in the yeah. way that these texts yeah. get utilized. Should we submit yeah. to every governing authority at any moment? Should we submit to the political rulers? And I do agree with you that three uh, thirteen seven rather does come out of nowhere. It seems like Paul's been driving towards this. That part of the good he's calling them to do seems to be about paying their taxes. Yeah. Well, I okay. A couple things. Um, uh, Paul would say that you order yourselves under only when it is consistent with the will of God. You never order yourselves under a political government if that political government, for instance, is telling you to disobey the law, the mm -hmm. Torah, or the Jews, uh, or to follow Jesus. So then it's persecution. It's, it's no longer uh, legitimate government authority. So I do think that there is, uh, there is a requirement to read this in the context of Jewish civil disobedience uh, and of Jewish resistance to bad laws. Okay, now one of the more interesting things is Paul uses this language, and I put this in capital with uh, uppercase first letter, the good and the bad. There's an abstraction here. And Paul talks about uh, honor, mm -hmm. which is public praise. So I think Paul is actually doing something very similar to what we will see in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he's, he's the Greek uh, that Peter uses is agatha poieo, and agatha poia, and this is the term of public benevolence. I have a feeling that Paul is saying, you, 
You need to do good things. It says in verse three, do the good and you will have public praise from it. Hmm. Public praise. Now, if I walk down the street and someone drops their basket full of fruit, uh, you know, lemons, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, there were lemons in the first century. There weren't tomatoes, which is really sad about Italy that they didn't have Pomodoro in the first century because they have them today. But if I, if I help you pick up your basket, I'm not going to get public praise for that. Public right. praise is, is the language of, of uh, public honor by the official authorities. So I think Paul believed uh, believers in Rome well-established believers, Jewish or Gentile, should be involved in public benevolence, public service. Uh, not so they get praise. Paul has a whole theory that it all should give, give praise to God. But he's using their language. Look, we want to do things that are going to bring public praise to what we're doing rather than uh, coming down upon us. Now, many people would say that this is a pragmatic strategy. Romans 13 is, is when you don't have any power, the best way to live is to stay out of trouble. And I don't doubt one bit that that was a strategy of early Christians, both by Paul and by Peter. But I do really believe that he, he had concern about believers acting with uh, in in public with, with public benevolence, the other side of this is this whole thing about taxation is really interesting, and there are there are theories about this by different scholars uh, based on just shreds and shards of evidence rather than really clear. So there's there's lots of theories, but um, if it is the fact that these people are some of these believers are returning to Rome. It's very possible, say, you can see this in Richard Longenecker's massive lifelong commentary on Romans. When they get back to Rome, uh, you can read about this. I don't remember exactly his viewpoint on this. Uh, they may well have had to pay taxes twice. They had to pay it, let's just say, in Jerusalem or Antioch or in Ephesus or in Corinth. And now when they get back, all of a sudden they got to pay uh, tribute again and uh, different forms of taxation. And the terms used uh, are up for grabs at times. Hmm. Um, I, I do think that he's saying, you know, just, just pay the taxes and keep us out of trouble. Hmm. Uh, but remember to, to love one another even more because that's far more important. So I, I really do believe that he believed in public benevolence. He believed in paying taxes. He believed in staying out of trouble. But he certainly did not believe that you should do whatever the government says because it's the government. He would have said, you do what the government says so long as it is consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus and acting under the principle of Christoformity, life like Jesus. Yeah, so. that's really helpful. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this whole idea of uh, the good and the bad and the sort of abstraction, the way that Paul talks about it. You know, in 12.2, he had said, don't become a model of this era, but become remodeled by the revival of your mind so that you can judge suitable what God wants, what is good, 
judged acceptable and complete. I mean, even they're the good, but then when you come to the end of chapter 12, don't conquer the bad by the bad, conquer the bad by the good. And then this whole notion of public goodness in these acts, that's really great. Um, maybe just as we begin to end our time. So it's pretty clear then that, that God is above all political powers here then. God is under political powers. Um, God is it, under? Uh, well, you know, he's above and under beside. I'm just saying like he. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he is the authority over these things. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that does lead to problematic questions on the other side of this, doesn't it? I mean, I'd think about um, someone asking of this text. Uh, so God is over these things. Does that mean he endorses what they do? I think that's a pretty common question that people in the pew would want to ask of a text like this. If, if God is over Rome, uh, permitting Rome to do these things, does that mean he endorses this way? Um, and I think some people would probably want to come to a conclusion like that with a text like this. What, what, what would, what would you say to that? Well, okay. This is a, this is a big issue. Um, I am increasingly in stronger and stronger disagreement with the way many believers talk about the sovereignty of God mm. and the providence of God. Yeah. Because the, the more God is in control, and let's just say what Roger Olson likes to critique John Piper with meticulous sovereignty. Yeah, meticulous sovereignty. The more God becomes implicated in evil. And Roger is willing to say that you make God a moral monster when yeah. he's in charge of everything. I am moving more, uh, more and more convinced, I should say, that God created a world in which he granted human beings agency and freedom, and that the evil that we experience is the result of human evil and human sin, not, uh, let's say, the orchestration of God. And therefore, even the language that talks about what God did this for this or that, is the language of an experience is that we learn from, let's just say, just put it this way. Let's say you have an authority like Putin and you speak up for the poor and he kills you or he puts you in prison and tortures you for five years. Um, I don't think that the lessons learned in prison that even Solzhenitsyn learned are that God did those things. God put you in torture. God tortured you in a sense. So you would learn those. But those are the things we learn as we relate to God when we are being tortured. Right. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 22 through 33 gives a list of all the crap he's experienced as a missionary, you know, and I don't think he's blaming God for these things, but he's just saying uh, through this whole thing, I've, I've learned that, that God's glory is displayed in my weakness. And I've learned in my weakness to participate in the cross of Christ. Hmm. He's not saying God just about sunk my ship or God had me beaten in this prison to teach me this. He's saying, I learned this in that experience. So his theology yeah. is sharpened. Um, and I'm, I'm quite concerned that anyone who would say, 
uh, that every every government is ordained by God specifically, and that every decision they make is the decision of God, and you have to do it. That, I think, puts you in a position that is just profoundly immoral yes. and profoundly unbiblical. Yeah. So this is not a universal statement. This is um, a strategy at that moment in time for how the believers in Rome need to react um, as they learn to love and pursue peace in Rome uh, as new believers and as a very small group. Yeah. Okay, let's end on that then. This is the, the encouragement then is peace. Peace plays a big role in Romans. Uh, and yep. here, in here, love is, you know, taxes pale in comparison to love, you know, yes. Caesar yeah. pales in comparison to God, pay the tax, do the good, express the love, make peace. Obviously, this is really important for Paul. So talk to us then for a moment, just about peacemaking through love, or love as a manifestation of peacemaking in that as we love, we fulfill the code. And in fulfilling the code, yeah. of course, we follow the model of Jesus who takes on the face of covenant code. So talk to us about that love and peacemaking. Yeah. Well, um, it's always it's always a little bit of this and a little bit of that when, when we're discerning how best to live as believers in a situation that's difficult. But I think Paul would say the first thing you need to ask yourself as a follower of Jesus is how do I best love this person? Now, sometimes it might mean telling them that what they're doing is wrong. It might mean pursuing justice and unraveling an unjust situation. And and what can I do in this situation that can bring peace and reconciliation? Those are Christian first foots, first feet, first foots forward. Okay. Those are, but that doesn't mean that, that they're going to be walked on. It might mean they're going to be walked on, but it also, they might surrender themselves, say, Bonhoeffer believed that when you suffer, you actually undo evil by exposing it. Yeah, I think there's something very true about that. And I, I think that's a strategy, a theory that we operate with. But um, I believe that Paul wants the believers in Rome, especially because there's hardly any of them, to pursue peace. And, and I think he's probably pushing against some people who were a bit of hotheads who thought, we're not, I'm not paying taxes. I stand with God. I'm not doing this sort of thing. And he's saying, no, no, that's not the way we're going to live. There may be a day when you live like that. And John, I think, finds it in, in Revelation. Right. But for Paul in Rome, at this situation, he wanted them to be pursuing peace, pursuing love, um, working with justice, living with one another, and trying to find peace amongst one another as a model for how to live in the Roman government. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I like that you brought up, of course, Revelation. You know, many will point to the fact that, you know, Romans 13 needs to be read alongside Revelation 13 and uh, to figure out what moment we're in and the way that we respond. That's 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 really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting, too, because Paul cares a lot. I mean, in 12 highlights this, that uh, among Jew Gentile, among the people in Rome, that they're to live with peace among one another, but then that peaceableness that they're called to live with is not just in in the community that's been formed by Jesus, but it extends beyond that into the empire. That it's not just peace yep. among one another, but 
piece more broadly. And so I'll just end then with what Paul says at the end of this passage. You know, Paul says in all of these things, you know, the, the dawn has come close. Uh, put on weapons of light. You gotta love Paul using weapons language. Walk respectably, put on Christ, reject the mindset of the flesh. This is where Paul ends this chapter before he then turns to the powerful and the unpowerful. But it's really helpful. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, again, yes, uh, this was fun. It's a, a time to politic. Uh, today we had the opportunity to talk about Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans uh, chapter 13. So join us next time as we come back to more Pauline texts and we stick with Paul as we figure out what it means to politic alongside the New Testament. 